I looked out the window. We were on this bridge uh, over a, a river. I looked out the window, Malika, and I saw a line of refugees walking along a dam. You could see the river has a significant current. There's quite an undertow. One of the refugees delicately, you know, stone by slippery stone in bare feet, making his way across, dropped his bag. You can see how the current just, the bag was bobbing away in the current. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Natasha Ganem is a senior correspondent for Al Jazeera. She's been in the Turkish town of Edirne at the Turkish-Greek border, talking to refugees. And a bag, she says, even a bag holding all they have left in the world, isn't the only thing many of these refugees have lost. This is kind of the situation that refugees are in. They've sort of lost control over their destinies. Turkey has taken in more than 4 million refugees since the start of the Syrian civil war. For many of them, that's been long enough to learn Turkish, get a job, and start a family. But Turkey isn't home. Up until now, though, it's been their life. Going back to Syria has been too dangerous, and going on to Greece and then elsewhere in Europe seemed impossible. Just over a week ago, that changed. 34 Turkish soldiers were killed in an airstrike in Syria, and now Turkey's refugees are being encouraged to leave. Oh, for sure they are being encouraged. This movement uh, to the border was being communicated by Turkish local media and being facilitated by uh, tur- the Turkish government. And people told us, we heard on the news, Turkey has opened its borders. We can go to Europe. Natasha is based at Al Jazeera's headquarters in Doha, but flies really anywhere in the world when she's needed. I touched down in Istanbul after getting a wake-up call in the middle of the night that 34 Turkish soldiers had been killed in fighting in Idlib, Syria. And as a result, uh, the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, was saying Syrian refugees and migrants who want to leave the country can leave. We opened the doors, and as of this morning, around 18,000 forced the doors and crossed. Today it could reach to 25 to 30,000. We will not close the doors going ahead and this will continue. This was a big deal. The reverberations were about to be felt not just in Turkey, but throughout Europe. So I got on the first plane from Doha to Istanbul, touched down in the afternoon, and we got a tip that there were people, Syrian refugees and other refugees, amassing in the center of Istanbul and being bused for free to the border. This was rush hour on a Friday. It was pretty chaotic. And what we found, Malika, is that there were huge groups of people with one bag, two bags each, and they were packing refugees onto these buses and taking them here to the border. We used to live like this. It's not new. Like today or some, we are living like foreign Syria. We are like this. We don't know where we are going. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. We met up with a Syrian refugee named Mohammed. He's an artist who's been living in Istanbul for several years. And he said, look, 
I have a life here, but I'm not really living. I haven't seen my family in two years. I can't go back to Syria. Going to Europe to try to have some sort of future is my only option. I don't have a choice, actually. And I can't be like, just like surrender and stay and doing nothing and being like hopeless. We should like have hope, we should fight actually. Not fight with gone, fight in our mind, in our souls. Since Turkey made this announcement, tens of thousands have joined Mohammed heading north. And we wanted to know what happens next at the border and for those who manage to cross over to the other side. Natasha says some of the people at the border now have been there for days. So take me to Adirne. What did it look like that first day? Look, I would tell you that we did not see thousands of people. If Many people will look back in their minds, perhaps, and remember the massive flow of refugees we saw in 2015, 2016, walking over the borders of various countries in Europe. That is not what we saw. We did see lots of people walking, of course, um, walking on bridges, walking along farmland, heading toward this official checkpoint between Turkey and Greece. They want to use it as only a transit point, and they want to continue on to Western Europe. They know that much, that the opportunities for them would be better in Western Europe. And to continue on to Europe, many go through that checkpoint Natasha described. Most successfully get themselves at least to the other side of the river. And then... We found these villagers on the other side who were waiting to make a profit for about two, three dollars for anyone who had money left in their pockets. They were telling these refugees, we will take you by a horse and cart, a van, even a tractor uh, or a motorcycle, a short distance to get you a little bit closer to the checkpoint. This is all farmland, by the way. And, you know, I asked one of the smugglers, why are you doing this? And he said, well, we're poor. We need money. If we didn't, we wouldn't do this. These sound like very desperate measures. I met a father and son from Afghanistan at the Adirne bus station. And like many people were speaking to, they did manage in those initial days when Turkey opened its borders to sneak into Greece. They cut open the fence. They crawled through. His name is Shakatuli. Shakatuli said they walked for about an hour And they needed help. They didn't know where to go to next. So they asked some Greek people in the area if they could help direct them to the nearest bus station. The next thing they know, the police have arrived. They were arrested, taken to jail. And Shakatuli told us, like many people have told us, that they were beaten, that the Greek police confiscated their money their vital documents, their mobile phones, and in the case of Shakatuli and his father, even their shoelaces. Why did they take his shoelaces? They were jailed. So when you're in jail, they take your shoelaces and your belts. They didn't get their shoelaces back. They didn't get their money, their vital documents, their mobile phones back. It seems like such a small thing, shoelaces. But I'm imagining... When those are your only shoes and you're walking around in winter and you can't keep your shoes on. So Shakatuli and his father were at the Adirne bus station where they had been returned to in a holding pattern. They have no money 
to go anywhere else. They don't know what to do. Many of these people haven't eaten again because they have no money. And he spoke English. So of course, I'm going to remember what he said uh, for a very long time. He said to me, that Turkey and Greece are playing with refugees who have lost their everything. They don't have to give anything, but they are playing, I don't know what kind of uh, democracy they are playing. So what we're seeing is a lot of people who aren't making it out. They're in this kind of holding pattern. We're quite a distance from the checkpoint. But what we do know is refugees, at least hundreds at one particular checkpoint, they cross over the official Turkey border. Then they're stuck in a kind of no man's land between Turkey and Greece. So they're frustrated. They're sort of trapped. And there have been reports of refugees throwing stones at the Greek police. There also have been reports, allegations by uh, the Greek government that uh, refugees have been hurling Turkish uh, military-grade tear gas canisters at them, something Turkey denies. But these refugees then say they're being met with a cloud of tear gas. There were some reports, Malika, though, of gunshots. It's a bit difficult from a, as far back as we are to know, but in a very telling example of this war of words that's going on between Turkey and Greece, Turkey said that one migrant had been killed at the border and six wounded. They were accusing the Greek police of firing live fire. The Greek government said that this is fake news being disseminated by the Turkish government and completely denied it. These refugees are really caught in the middle, but we know that some have survived this life-threatening trek and they're making it to Greece. I talked to a journalist there about what this past week and a half has been like on one Greek island where refugees are arriving. My name is Francesca Grillmeier. I'm a German freelance reporter living on the island of Lesbos. Francesca has lived on Lesbos since 2018, and she's seen many refugees come ashore, including these most recent arrivals from Turkey. Now there's around 1,000 people new people who arrived here on the shorelines. I've been at a landing where I could see a lot of families, a lot of elderly people and children. It was mainly Afghan families. But for these arrivals, it was different, she says. The tension was obvious. Now they are met with the high aggression of the Greek Coast Guards, So many of them have to turn around or can't even get through. But some did get through. A lot of refugees arrived on the island, were harassed. A few uh, people were at the coast and screaming at them, shouting at them that they were not welcomed here. There was a complete sense of anger, frustration and powerlessness against this discrimination and racism. And it wasn't just the refugees who were attacked. It was also the people providing services to refugees, NGO workers and the journalists telling the refugees' stories. A lot of NGOs even shut down because of security concerns. But Francesca was still there, and she wanted to know what was happening to the refugees 
who were there too, if they were safe. So she drove to Moira, the biggest refugee camp in Lesbos. It's also been dubbed the world's worst. Then I, I told my colleague, let's go, let's see what's happening in Moreb. There were no, no doctors there anymore. People had left because of security threats. And so we were, we were driving on the coastline and then we were stopped by a group of black-coated people. Some of them were wearing masks and they had uh, sticks in their hand and stones. It was night, so it was hard to tell exactly who these people were. We first mistook them for residents of the camp of Moria, but it was it was like 100 um, men who were work, walking in the street. These men weren't refugees. In fact, Francesca later found out, the men were looking for people like her. Once they saw that we weren't Greek, um, they they started, yeah, trying to get on the on the car. Uh, wanted to rip the doors open, uh, threw stones and sticks at us, and then we kind of we needed to drive closely to to a wall in order not to hit someone over who was jumping in front of our car, so we, that we could escape. The men have since been described as fascist mobs. And then I saw uh, some two two Afghan parents um, walking with a stroller and their kid right into that moment which we just escaped from. You know, I, I don't know what happened afterwards. And this is a, one of the most horrible feelings. Many people blame the Greek government for standing by, letting it happen. UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. My name is Boris Cheshirkov. I'm the UNHCR spokesperson in Greece. Wasn't able to escape the violence on Lesbos either. They were trying to prevent people from getting off a dinghy that had just arrived. And there were also families and young children. And they were abusing them verbally and telling them to go back to where they came from. My colleague Astrid, she's our head of office. She, of course, felt obliged to intervene and she called for calm. And that led to her being pushed and, uh, and verbally assaulted. The UNHCR's Lesbos office also shut down temporarily. These attacks happened in a span of just days. Well, the EU has promised $800 million to Greece to deal with a refugee and migrant surge from Turkey. They stopped the day the EU gave Greece the money they'd asked for to continue accepting refugees. But just days ago, another refugee shelter on Lesbos burnt to the ground. Since then, UNHCR, Doctors Without Borders, and a lot of the NGOs have started back up, though some workers still haven't returned, making bad conditions at the worst refugee camp even worse. If you go to Moria right now, you'll see that people are navigating these narrow footpaths that are littered with garbage. There are around 20,000 refugees at a facility made for just 3,000. It's filthy. They have to queue for hours. For almost everything, meals, water, showers, the toilet. We estimate, and uh, other health NGOs are estimating 200 people to a bathroom. For these people, just surviving is a daily challenge. And now, once again, they've been tossed into this political football game. So I wanted to go back to the beginning with Natasha to understand why Turkey made this decision to open their border now. All of this has happened so fast, and there are so many lives caught up in this. 
Well, in terms of the timing, it's important for people to remember that Turkey does have boots on the ground in Idlib, Syria. And there is a fight for control over this last remnant, rebel-held remnant in Syria. Turkey says that it's been asked to be there by Syrian civilians to help protect them. There's been intense fighting in recent weeks. Turkey lost soldiers, and it's clear that was a trigger for the Turkish government. Helicopters and ambulances were seen streaming across the border earlier in the day to evacuate the wounded. The Turkish government has been has felt isolated in this matter. It has been wanting military assistance from NATO. Turkey's sending a message to Europe with this decision. Turkey has also felt abandoned by Europe in 2016 to help stop that massive migration that everyone remembers, Syrian refugees into Europe. Turkey signed a deal with the European Union in exchange for between six and seven billion dollars, it would impose strict controls on its borders and stop the flow. So Turkey was holding these refugees back, and now they're not. The Turkish government has made it clear they are ill-equipped to handle another flow of refugees on that scale. Last, last question. I want your take on the people you're talking to that have come from Syria, what their hopes are when it comes to returning back home? Well, it just so happens that we found a a stretch of Syrian refugees from Idlib. They'd been camping out on a riverbank in the center of Idurne uh, for three, four days, and uh, they had congregated together. Uh, I'm Egyptian-American. I speak so-so Arabic. Some of them were teasing me about my not-so-great Arabic uh, They, when they found out I was American. One of them today was saying, can you pack me in your suitcase and take me back to the United States with you? They are... Uh, cracking smiles, even though, as one of them said to me, I'm smiling to you, but I'm crying inside. So I was asking them today about what it's still like for their family in Idlib. How do they feel? They're here. Uh, They are now trying to look to the next phase of life, which would be crossing into Western Europe. And they still have family living in sheer misery. And one of the men I spoke to said, look, do you think I would be here in this position if I could go back to Idlib? There's nothing left for me in Idlib. I'm still young right now, and I have the chance to make a future for myself. And that's The Take. Today's episode was produced by Amy Walters with Dina Kispe, Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilve, and Ney Alvarez. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Our engagement producer is Natalia Aldana. Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. And one last note, considering all of the concerns around coronavirus or COVID-19, you may be wondering how refugees are faring. So were we. Just before we published this episode, Lesbos diagnosed its first coronavirus case. We should say the patient is not a refugee. We had a chance to talk to Vasilis Strabarides, the Director General of Doctors Without Borders in Greece. 
and he's concerned about what might happen if coronavirus does make its way to the refugee camps. Knowing how contagious it can be and how easily it can be transmitted from one person to another, just understanding that in uh, so small places you have so many people with very poor hygiene, it is very, very worrying. And there's another worry too, people worrying. And uh, when people do not have enough information, uh, this fear increases possibly their anger as well. And they are even more negative towards new people arriving. It is far from over for these refugees. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, go to aljazeera.com slash the take. You can find subscribe links there. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at AJ the Take.